You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Kirkwood confessed in the early service, and I think all y'all need to hear his confession. He had a senior moment, which was a bright spot for me. What made me happy anyway, that he confessed it. I hope you've got your copy of God's Word this morning. You remember about two Sundays before Easter, I came and I said, I'd really like for at least 120 people out of this congregation to spend 50 days praying for me. And uh, that 50 days would be the time from Easter to Pentecost, which is today. Today is uh, Pentecost, the day the church was born. And um, that's what Acts chapter 2 is all about. You ought to go home and read Acts chapter 2 and appreciate Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, and what God did in the birth of the church. Uh, By the way, tomorrow is June the 6th, and I just want to stop and pause and give thanks for the men, the women, uh, for those who sacrificed their lives to go in on the greatest invasion in human history. It was uh, the invasion of Europe. Uh, The Americans, the Brits, the Australians, the Canadians all went in on the shores of France. My dad was... One of those who went in on June the 6th in the afternoon, and uh, I just always remember 78 years ago, we should teach the next generation to appreciate our history and not distort it. Okay, that's that's my senior moment for the day right there. Now back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21. I came and I asked for folks to pray those 50 days for God to send revival. Not just revival for the nation, the nation desperately needs it, not just uh, for the church. Our denomination certainly needs it. The church needs it in our day, but for God to send personal spiritual revival in our own lives. And uh, the elders came back. So I had several elders come back and said, Pastor, we've had some folks come up and say, uh, what is revival? What are you talking about? Uh, what does that mean? So I went to 2 Kings Uh, chapter 18, Life of Hezekiah, and I gave you a picture of what revival was in in the Old Testament uh, through Hezekiah, through the Lord moving in the midst of the work of Hezekiah. Well, I also gave you a definition by Richard Owen Roberts, a dear, dear man of God, most people have never heard of, a man who was friends with John Stott, a man who um, was a brilliant preacher, never ordained, had no doctor's degree, had no reverend title, uh, but was a layman who was an expert. If If you are in doctoral studies and you go back to look who are the experts on revival, Richard Owen Roberts is one of them. Well, Dr. Roberts, Richard Owen Roberts said this. He said, revival is the presence of God in the midst of his people. He'd given a number of definitions. He said in his old age, he says, I've shortened it to this. And he says, I think it's succinct and it's accurate. The presence of God in the midst of his people. And so I began to just preach out of Galatians chapter 5 on the fruit of the spirit that I really call the fruit of revival. What is it? Uh, what is it going to look like when revival shows up in my own life? Well, all you've got to do is go to the fruit of the Spirit. That's exactly what the presence of God in your life will begin to produce, and you will bear that fruit. Now, you can't produce that fruit, but you will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life. 
And so we're in the middle of that, but I'm going to take just a moment this morning, and I'm going to go back to the Old Testament, and I want to show you something. Why is it that when we pray for revival, listen, if you go out and ask anybody, you see it all over social media, what does America need? Oh, America needs revival. We need to pray for revival for America. And, and you find this comment constantly. I'm seeing it so much about the, the Baptist denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. We need revival. We need revival. We, well, why is it if we pray for revival, if we had 120 plus people praying for revival, what's going to happen today? Now, I shared with you revival is a sovereign act of God. I can't bring revival. You can't bring revival. That's a sovereign act of God. But why does revival tarry? Why does it not come? There was a book written by that title by Leonard Ravenhill years ago, Why Revival Tarries. And he spent that book writing, talking about the various things that keep revival from coming. Why revival, why we don't experience, why we've got at least two generations, maybe three, that has never experienced a mighty move of God in our midst. Really, the last that I can think of was in the 70s and the Jesus movement. So many uh, people in the ministry today came out of that movement because they were saved at that time. But we've really not seen it for one or two generations now, a, a, a great move of God. Why does it tarry? Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to show you why this morning, at least a couple of reasons why, this morning out of this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And I want you to listen to me, and I want you to get this. Until we have a burden for the presence of God. Now listen, until we have a burden for the presence of God greater than our preoccupation with all of the issues and needs of our lives, we will never experience the presence of God in revival or his blessings that can meet our needs. Now, that's a long thesis statement. Um, I, I, I'm probably going to be teaching, preaching this fall, and I'd grade a student off on that. But to see, I can do it. No, um, I want you to listen to it. I want you to think about it. Until we get a burden, we Christians, those of us here at Van, until we get a burden. Now, did you pray for the presence of God on your way to church this morning? Did you spend some time last night praying that the presence of God would show up here in church when you came? Most of us just come out of a habit of coming. We never precede our coming to church with a time of prayer. Oh, God, would you pour out your presence on us when we get to the gathering of your family on the Sabbath? Until we get a burden greater than our preoccupation with all of the needs in our lives, We'll never experience the presence of God. We'll never experience the blessings of God that can meet those needs. 2 Samuel. Now, let me tell you something about the book of 2 Samuel. It covers, really, the, the time that David is king of Israel. It covers that whole period. 1 Samuel is about David. 2 Samuel, you get into 1 Kings and you read about the death of David there. But uh, 2 Samuel has one word that describes the entire book. In fact, if you're going to go right here, and sometimes I do this, this is a new Bible. Uh, when I get somewhere like this, the second book of Samuel, I will write, what is a word that describes this book? And I'm going to give you the word that describes 2 Samuel, repentance. 
repentance. As you read through the whole of 2 Samuel, you're going to look for this whole thing of repentance because it is so prominent through the book. Now, that's chapters 1 through 20. When you come to chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, it's an epilogue. The writer of 2 Samuel, it's like he writes all the way through the reign of David, ends in chapter 20, and then he says, oh, but there's some great stories about David. These are not chronological in order, but these are stories that the writer goes back and says, I got to tell you, this happened in David's life, and this happened in David's life, and this happened in David's life. And you come down to chapter 4 where it all ends. Listen, the end of it is where David, in the end, builds an altar to God in repentance for his sin. So you come to these last chapters, and that's what's happening in chapter 21 as we begin with verse 1. And everything you really need to know about these next couple of verses uh, is given to us in the very first verse. Now, 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, before I can get into the text, I've got to give you historical back. You, if you don't grasp this, you never will catch what's going on in these, in these verses. So put your finger right there in 2 Samuel and go with me all the way back 500 years to Joshua chapter 9. All the way back 500 years to Joshua. And uh, what you're going to discover in Joshua 9 is that Joshua and the armies of Israel now have broken into the land of Canaan. This was the land God had promised Abraham. They've gotten into the land. The walls of Jericho have fallen. Ai now has been defeated after all that debacle. We, we won't go through that. But Ai has been defeated. Now, what are all the people in the land doing? They all come together. Who are they? They're every one of them are Canaanites. And the time of the Canaanites is up. God had given them 400 years. You remember he tells Abraham that? He, he tells him, he says, listen, there's going to be 400 years that uh, your descendants will be here in Egypt until the time of the Amorites, till the fulfillment of the Amorites. He gives them 400 years to repent of their sin. Now, that's what you call a merciful God right there, a gracious God right there. It's like me looking at my kid and say, I want you to clean your room up. And in 400 years, I'm coming back to check on it, you know, kind of deal. So he gives them 400 years to get their act together, and they don't. They reject him. They teach their children to be just pure pagans, and uh, they pass it from generation to generation. So now, all of that's done, and the children of Israel are coming in to take the land God had promised Abraham. Uh, they're there. I'm in, I'm in the ninth chapter of uh, Joshua. And it says in verse 1 that the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusites, they all heard of what had happened at Jericho and Ai. And they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight against Joshua with Israel. Well, when the inhabitants of Gibeon who heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they acted craftily and set out as envoys. And they took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and worn out and patched sandals on their feet, and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua. They come into the camp of Joshua, and they say to him, uh, listen, 
we have come from a far country. I'm from, they, they walk up and say, I'm from a land from a faraway place where the camel caravans roam. I guarantee you the kids know. Where's, what's that from? See, senior adults knew it. No, the kids knew it. There they go, right there. That's what they say. This is where we're from a very faraway land, from a very faraway place. Now listen to what's, what's happening. They knew. God had told these Hebrews, you wipe out the Canaanites. You get them out. Don't you leave a single Canaanite. Why? Do, does anybody here want a one single cancer cell running through your body anywhere loose? No. Why? Because it's going to multiply, and it's going to eat up what is the good part of your body. You don't want that. God said, you get rid of these Canaanites. You get them out of the land. And so when you go to war, you do them in, and uh, nobody can surrender. But if people from a faraway land come to you, outside of the land of Israel, and they come to you, you can embrace them. You can accept them. You can have a, a treaty with them. So these Gibeonites knew that that's what God had told his people. And so they come and they say to him, we have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard the report. These Gibeonites understood that the God of the Hebrews, I don't know why the rest of the Canaanites never got this. The Gibeonites did. That's the real God right there. Um, you, you, you remember, um, uh, was, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, the prostitute in Jericho. Rahab. Rahab understood it. She caught it. There were some of them that caught it, that understood it. These Gibeonites come, they say, listen, we're watching what you're doing. We know that your God's the real God. All these gods we've worshiped before, they don't have any kind of power like that. So they come and present themselves and say, listen, what we want... Could you give us some warm bread? We're kind of hungry. Look at our old moldy bread. It's crumbled. Could you give us something to drink? We've got old torn up wineskins. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Famous last words. They did not seek God in prayer. I'd have fed the people and I'd have said, before we do anything with you folks, we're going to go ask God. And so in, they didn't ask the Lord, but what they did was they entered into covenant. Look at verse 15 of uh, the ninth chapter of Joshua. Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them. In fact, the word says he cut a covenant with them. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. He cut a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. It came about at the end of three days after they made the covenant that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. And the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. And their cities were Gibeon and Kerith and Beroth and Kerith Jarim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. Why did y'all do this? And all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord. We have to keep our word. Do you remember last Sunday out of James chapter 5 where James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be honest. When you give your word, you keep your word. Well, they kept their word. And listen, it says we can't touch them. Why? Because we've entered into covenant with them. Now, put your finger right there in Joshua 9 you got it back there in 2 Samuel 20, 21. Go over here to Genesis 
chapter 15. And I'm going to show you this whole concept of covenant and to cut a covenant. You remember God shows up and he tells Abraham, now Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land. I called you out of the Ur of Chaldees to give you this land. And Abraham said, Lord, I, I know you did that, but come on. When, when am I, you know, how am I going to get all this land? When is it going to be mine? When will I possess it? And God said, this is what I want you to do. Go get me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat. Get me a three-year-old um, ram. Get a pigeon and a turtle dove. All but the birds you cut in half and you lay them opposite each other. Abraham slaughtered the animals, cut them in half, laid the parts of the animals opposite each other. And the Bible says he fell into a deep sleep and God showed him something. God began to speak to him. He was making a covenant with him. And Abraham saw the presence of God as a great smoking pot. And that pot, that burning pot, passed up between those pieces of animals. And this is what that meant, meant to cut a covenant. When I cut a covenant with you, I'm essentially saying, may God do to me what I did to these animals if I ever break my covenant with you. So that's cutting a covenant. That's why Joshua, back in the ninth chapter now of Joshua, could not go back on his word. I can't do that. I've entered into a covenant by the name of God himself with these Gibeonites. So what are we going to do? We'll make them servants. They'll serve in the temple. They will cut wood every day and haul the wood to the temple so that we can have our sacrifices and they will draw water for that great laver where the priests wash themselves. They will constantly haul water and cut, cut, chop, and bring wood for the service. And that's what the Gibeonites did. Under the covenant now, now, this is the whole background I've just given you. I'm going to start preaching now in just a minute, but I had to give you this background. And Saul kills these people. I won't go through the whole, uh, the whole issue, but uh, Saul, in, in his zeal, we are told back here in uh, 2 Samuel, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, he goes and he starts killing, and he, he nearly wipes out all of these Gibeonites. Now, that's the background. You got to keep all of that in mind, and I want to show you something. Let me start right here. Why does revival tarry? Why does God not move in our day? Why is it that everybody confesses, oh, we need revival, but we never see God move in revival? Number one, because we have, listen, we have an underestimation, an underappreciation for the high cost of sin in our lives and in this culture. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David. That ought to jump out. In the days of David, a famine was always seen as the judgment and the wrath of God. It was usually the wrath of God on his people when they had broken a covenant with him. There was a famine in the days of David. That's unusual. This is man after God's own heart. This is the great king that Israel had waited for and had longed for. There's a famine. Something doesn't sound right. And now listen to the second thing that it says, for three years. 
You mean for three years there's a famine? It is that severe? And then look at what the third thing that it says, year by year. Now, what that is saying is this, is that there is an intensification of the judgment of God year by year by year. Good Lord, does anybody say the United States of America? <laughs> uh, year by year by year, it gets worse, it gets worse, it gets worse. People are dying. Children are starving. Uh, things have gotten bad and things are getting worse. And finally, look at what we're told. David sought the presence of the Lord. That literally, when you read that word to seek or sought, means to, to look for their face. Here is the king who wants to get face to face with the king of kings. Here is David who wants God himself to come and to speak to him. And so David comes after three years. Now, here's my question. Why three years? Was it not bad enough under year one? Uh, probably didn't bother David so much. He wasn't so concerned because it really didn't bother him. Now, listen, David's a great man of God. But the fact of the matter is he's still a man. It didn't touch the food on his table. It didn't reach the palace. It didn't get to the household of David. And so David let year one go by thinking year two is going to be better, surely. And year two goes by. Why in the world not then? Why in the world didn't he get before God and say, God, what in the world is going on? Why is this taking place? Three years. Three years into a famine that becomes more and more severe, he finally goes to God. Now, do you want to see the grace of God in this? You want to know, does God answer my prayers? I can tell you this up front. God answers every prayer. Every prayer you pray, God answers. It's either yes, or it's later, or it's no, or it may be wait, or it may be you need to think a little bit about what you're praying for. But here, immediately, in the midst of a need, in the midst of a crisis, look at what it says. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. God answered. That's the grace of God. That the moment that David prayed, God responded and said, yes, David, I'll tell you exactly why it is. You've asked why. The reason is because Saul killed these people and in doing that, he broke a covenant that was made in my name. And you don't take my name lightly like that. We don't take seriously the name of God. We sling the name of God around like it's the name of John Brown. God this, God that, God the other. It's all over television. It's all over literature. It's all over the lips of people who should know the name of God is holy. Reverence the name of the Lord. He comes and he says, you just can't do that. Now, David knew exactly what he was talking about. God didn't have to go into detail. Hey, David, do you remember back when this took place in the reign of Saul and Saul went out and he did all of this to the Gibeon? He didn't have to go through that. Everybody knew about it. Everybody knew that Joshua had entered it. These people had served Israel for 500 years in the tabernacle. The temple had not yet been built, but they would serve God and the people of Israel in that temple when it was built. Everybody knew that they were there because Joshua had entered into covenant with them, and yet, do you know why nobody thinks about this? Because 
all of us put a different price tag on sin than God does. Oh, it's not that bad. Good golly. Come on. After all, listen, you know, Supreme Court says it's fine. Good Lord. You know how godly they are. You know, the government has approved of it. Everybody's doing it. This organization and that organization and another, they're all backing it. We can't fight all of that. You might as well just not worry about it. We put an entirely different price tag on sin. We see sin as not near as bad as God does. In fact, we work through it and we never look at the high cost of sin in our lives. We don't see it as abnormal. We don't see it as an abhorrence. We don't see it as an abomination. We don't see that we are to really be accountable for anything. That's the way the world is. It may be the way the world is. It is not a holy God. It's not the way he is. And so David, like everybody else in the land, came to the place where they were so preoccupied with other things and so so caught up and distracted by other issues that sin was not considered as seriously as it should be. Listen, let me me just say something to you here. To talk about sin today is to be laughed at in America. Anything that the Word of God says is an abomination, we are running after to embrace like a bunch of lemmings off of a cliff. We have an underestimation of the high cost of sin. I'll just give you one part of the Word of God here. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's why God doesn't come. That's why we look at a world that is so crazy and we, 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 we just casually make, oh man, what we need is revival. Yeah, we need it. And the reason it doesn't come is because we don't see sin the same way God does. Now, since y'all are so excited about that, I'll give you my second point. The second thing is this. Get down to verse three. We have an overestimation of our ability to handle our own sin to handle the issues and the problems that we've got. Now, I I just want you to notice, let me pick it up in verse two. The king, that is David, called the Gibeonites, he just went to God and said, God, why is this happening? God says, it's because of the sin of Saul. David just turns around and walks out the room. His conversation with God was over. So the king called the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? He calls them together. Watching all these personal pronouns here. So the king, that's, that's a noun. He calls, he calls the Gibeonites together. And he says, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of God? Bottom line is this. What is it that I can do make everybody happy so that, the, so that the, the flow of cash starts coming again? So that everybody gets happy and we get the economy moving again. So that everybody's got plenty to eat. He says, what do I need to do? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the people of God? And the Gibeonites said to him, we have no concern for silver or gold. You can tell these ain't Americans. God, we're not interested in your money. We're not interested in Saul's stuff or anything in Saul's house. We don't want any of that. That's, none of that is ours. 
uh, we, we're not interested in that. He doesn't, they don't even say, listen, we'd like to be let out from under this bondage to be servants, to cut wood all the time and to haul water. We'd like to be set free from that. They don't even ask for that. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance? The Gibeonites said to them, we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David says, come on now, come on. I will do for you whatever you say. Way to paint yourself in a corner, David. I'll do anything. You tell me what it is. I will do whatever you say. Do you see these eyes I, what can I do for you? How can I make atonement for you? Do you understand that's an impossibility for anybody to do? Let me just show you a couple of passages of Scripture and listen to what the Word of God says. Go with me over to Psalm chapter 49, Psalm 49, and I want you to listen to what the psalmist says. In the middle of this great psalm, he says this, no man can by any means redeem his brother. You can't do it. You can't redeem somebody. You may love them. I, as much as I love my kids, I can't redeem my kids. Man, every man, every woman has to stand before God himself, herself. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Give it up. Give it up. You, you can't make somebody else's sin right. You can't cover it up. You can't redeem them from the price of that sin. And let me tell you, take it a step further. You can't do it for yourself. It is an impossibility for anybody in this place to redeem themselves. If you get redemption, it comes one way through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Let me show you what God says to Babylon. Go over, if you would now, to the 49th chapter. I think it is. No, 47th chapter of Isaiah. God's going to speak. It's a, it's a lament for Babylon. And uh, I want you to listen. In, in, in verse 4 of Isaiah 47, uh, it states, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. This is who's speaking. This is who you've got to come before. And listen to what God says in verse 11. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. You ever known anybody like that? You ever known anybody that tried to charm themselves and could charm themselves out of any situation, any problem, any issue they ever got themselves in? I mean, they were just so charismatic, so GQ, so cute. They had a little dimple right here or little dimples right there, and they were just the cutest thing, and they could just charm themselves out of everything they got into, except with God. Except with God. You ain't that cute. You ain't that charming. You're not that charismatic. God comes and says, you won't be able to charm yourself out of standing before me one day. And he comes and he says, and disaster will fall on you for which you can't, look at this, for which you cannot atone. One single sin in my life, not any one single sin could I ever atone for, much less the mountain of sin in my life. 
and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. The word of God to us is this. You think too much of your ability to get yourself out of the sin, um, of what sin has gotten you into. David thought he could handle it. David thought that he could go and he could look at the Gibeonites and say, hey, I'm the king. I can do anything in the world. I've got all the ability, all the capability, all the resources to make atonement for the sin of Saul for you. Just tell me what it is you want to do. And he paints himself in a corner. Now, what happens is the weirdest bunch of stuff you'll ever read. This is wild. This is unbelievable. Second King, Second Samuel, chapter 21, listen to what they say. Verse 5, David says, I'll do for you whatever you say. Okay, now that you've painted yourself in that corner, this is what we want. The man who consumed us, who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, uh, the chosen of, of the Lord, and the king said, why not? I'll give them. Sure. I told you I'd do anything you said. Now, let me tell you, and let me say, I love David. And I think David is a great, great man, but he's still a man. And every man makes mistakes and errors, especially when we do not pray. You want to know how to raise a family? Why do I have issues going on? We haven't prayed over our families. We haven't prayed over them. We just go and we give all kind of advice. Why? Because we can handle this. We've got this. We can do this. And we paint ourselves in a corner. So David says, I'll give them. Now, verse 7, I've just got to show you this because you'll get messed up here if you're not careful. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. This is the Mephibosheth that was the son of Jonathan that God had promised Jonathan. Listen, I'm not going to forget your family. He knew. He entered into a covenant with Jonathan, and you remember how David treated Mephibosheth. He brought him to his own house, put him at his own table. This is a different Mephibosheth that you're about to read of, not the same one. Uh, this is here to help you understand the difference between the two. There was another son of Saul whose name was Mephibosheth. Verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth. Verse 8, so the king took the two sons of Rizpah. Rizpah was the other woman in Saul's life. She was his concubine. She was his mistress. Whatever you want to call her, that's what she was. The daughter of Aiah. Armani, y'all know who Armani is? This is the guy that made suits for everybody back in the days of David. Um, and, and Mephibosheth, whom she had born to Saul. So he takes from Rizpah, this mistress of Saul. She has two sons. One is, you know, his name is Mephibosheth. And then there is the, uh, the other, uh, the other son. So he takes those two boys then he takes the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she had born to Adriel. So he got seven sons, got two sons of Saul and five grandsons. They all are considered to be sons of Saul. 
and he hands them over to the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites are going to do exactly what they said they're going to do. Then he gave them, verse 9, into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. They took those seven sons of Saul out north of Jerusalem. Gibeah is north of Jerusalem. Uh, out to the northern part, up on a mountain, right there before God, and the Gibeonites, the word, do you know the word hang there means to separate? So I don't really know, and I don't know why I'm telling you this, because you don't have anything else to do today, but the, the Gib, I don't know what the Gibeonites did to them, whether they actually hanged them by the neck. It means to separate. It could mean to separate their head from their bodies. It can mean a number of things. They executed them was what they did. It was an execution before the Lord to pay back. Now, do you, you want to know why this is so bad? I'm not going to take you back to Numbers chapter 35, but now listen, Numbers chapter 35 comes from God, and it says this, you had better not murder anybody in the land, God says, because it pollutes the land. Do you remember what God said to Cain about the blood of Abel? Evidently, blood has the ability in the spiritual. You can't hear it with your ears, but you can certainly, listen, you can certainly in the spiritual dimension evidently hear blood because God says the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. How many innocent lives in this country, in the building of this country, in the making of this country, how many innocent lives have been murdered so that someone else could get ahead? Listen, don't even go to American history. We've got about 60 million plus right now that have been put to death in the mother's womb. And if you don't think God doesn't hear the blood of 60 million babies, you need to think again. There's a lot of crying out going on from the ground in America. Now, they kill these men, and then they do something. They put them on display. That's against the Word of God, too. Isn't it interesting that when you, when you break the Word of God one time, what does it lead to? Doing it again. Breaking the word of God again. So they put these bodies on display. The Hebrews never were to do that. God said that pollutes the land. You take the body down and you bury it that night, that day. You bury it before nightfall comes. Don't leave a body up, the Old Testament says. But they left these bodies up. They did that. The Philistines did that to Saul and to Jonathan and his sons when they were defeated. At Bet Shan, they hung them up on the walls there. And the word of God says, listen, my people don't do that. Well, here they're doing it. They're doing it here because David thought he could handle all this sin himself. You want to know why revival tarries? Why, when we pray for revival, God, why don't you send it? Why don't you move? Why don't you do something right now? It's because we have an overestimation of our ability to handle things that only God can handle. Now, you depressed enough? Let's go home. Let me, let me, let me turn you now and show you something. 
And that is God's restoration of his blessing in the midst of all of this unbelievable events going on, in the midst of all this need. Now watch, you've got to see this. Look at this. You come to verse 10 and it says, Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. Now, let me just stop there and point you back to verse 9 where it says they were put to death in the first days of the harvest. That's April. Barley harvest comes in in April. And, it, and she's going to stay there until the rains came. It's referring to the latter rains that come. That doesn't come until about late October into November, 1st of December. Get into it in the 1st of January, by the way. That's when the later rains come. She sits out there now for eight to nine months. They go eight to nine months. Why didn't God, why didn't God immediately cause rain to fall when they, when they executed these seven guys? Because I don't think this was God's will. David never prayed. He never stayed around and said, okay, God, I know why this happened. Now tell me, how am I supposed to handle this? He never did that. I don't think this is what God would have had them do. God puts up with a lot of stuff from us that really is not God's will in our lives, right? Amen, right. I don't think this is what God would have had them do, but she sits out there now for eight to nine months. This woman, Rizpah, a, a concubine, the other woman, but watch it, what she does. She comes out there. This tells me everything I need to know about what she's doing out there. She took sackcloth. Now, what is sackcloth? It's a material, a very harsh, coarse material. It is always associated with repentance. Always associated with repentance. This woman goes out there with sackcloth in repentance. And who is she repenting to? Where does she spread that sackcloth? The rock. Do I have to explain this to you? <laughs> Here's a woman who in repentance comes to the rock. God himself. She spreads it out there. And from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky, she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night when it was told David that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. David goes down now. Just let me tell you something. This woman sits out there. Think about this. This woman sits out there on a mountaintop, on a rock, and watches her sons die. And she stays there as the bodies decompose in, in the day and the night. She stays until they all become bleached bones. The stench, the smell, the disgusting element of being out there with seven dead bodies. Let me tell you something. Jesus wasn't killed in a place that was antiseptic but it was on a filthy place where the public passed daily. Between two thieves, he died. There is nothing delicate about atonement. It is nasty, dirty, 
stinking work. And she stays out there until David hears. And David hears what this woman, this concubine, don't you know she was looked down on? But I'm going to tell you, God uses this woman to turn the whole story right here. She stays out there until David hears. Verse 13, we are told, or verse 12, we're told that David went and took the bones. And in verse 13, we're told again, he brought up the bones. And then he buries them up there in the grave of Kish, his father, Saul's father. Remember, Saul's father was Kish. He buries all those boys in the father's tomb. It was a sign of repentance on David's part. David gets under conviction that this woman is out there doing the right thing when he as king knew better than to leave those bodies up. And he goes and he gets the body of Saul and Jonathan and his sons and he goes and he gets these seven bodies and he takes them up to bury them. And I think the reason you read that he did it specifically is because David is doing this in repentance, knowing that what he had done was not God's will. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does it ring like something else in your ears when you read this? about someone dying for somebody else's sin outside the walls of Jerusalem to the north of Jerusalem on a rock in a public place and where noble men came and took the body and buried it in a tomb. All this is saying and pointing to is that one day, the one who keeps the covenant perfectly becomes the one who is accused of being the covenant breaker so that the covenant breakers could be seen as the covenant keepers. Don't forget Rizpah. A woman who, when she prayed, look at the last of verse 14. When she prayed in repentance, after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. Let's stand. That's why we don't experience revival. Revival is the hard work of getting on your face before God and confessing your own sin. That's the only thing that will bring revival. Somebody here this morning, you're listening to this, and I shared with you right in the middle of all of this is that there was one who came to redeem you, and his name was Jesus. He was the one that went to the cross to die for your sins. And he rose on that third day from the tomb to give you the option of having eternal life with him. Let me ask you something this morning. Don't you want to respond to that kind of invitation? Don't you want to put your faith and your trust in a Lord who loves you? Who's already paid the penalty for your sin. 
That's not the issue. Is will Jesus forgive you? Yes. He's already made it possible. He's already died and he's already been resurrected. The question is, will you receive for yourself his payment for your sin? You say, what do I need to do? Just this. Just right in your heart, right where you're standing, right here, right now, you just simply say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I realize you died on a cross to do just that, and that you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. And in the best way that I know how, I'm giving myself, my life, my heart, my eternity, my future. I'm putting all of that into your hands by faith. Trusting that you really do love me that much. And I do it in Jesus' name. Now listen, I'm going to ask you to do something that really will nail that down for you. And that is to come and make that public. Just come down and take me by the hand and say, I've prayed and I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Others of you this morning, you say, well, I, I, that went by so fast, I didn't get a chance, but I, I want to do that. God's speaking to my heart. Then you come right here. I can lead you through that prayer. I can't pray it for you, but I can help you as you pray that prayer. Others of you need to come and put your life in the life of this church. You've been coming here. God's ministering to you. God's blessing you. God's feeding you in this place. You need to come and be a part of this fellowship. Some of you just need to get to the altar this morning. Maybe you have for too long compromised sin. You've, you've put a, a price tag on sin that is very different than what God has put on it. Or maybe this morning you're guilty of trying to fix all of this stuff yourself and you've come to realize, I can't do it. Listen, a Savior waits you. A Savior waits you. Jesus waits for you. Come and trust him. Trust the one who loved you enough to die for you. Right now, as we wait with our heads bowed, Father, be honored in this moment. And give us a freedom. Lord, bring down the wall of resistance in our hearts and in our lives and in the church so that your people will move when you call. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Right now, you come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.